0: Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or, for users of all other podcast apps, through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. The rabbit hutch, or to give it its official name, La La Preniere, is a low-cost housing complex in the post-industrial town of Vacaville, Indiana. It's home to a mix of generations and familial constellations, couples, singletons, roommates, whose lives ebb and flow according to the economic and social forces that surround them, as well as the deeper flowing currents of their pasts. It's also home to Blondine, who, we learn at the beginning of Tess Gunty's novel, isn't like the other residents of her building. How and crucially why this is the case are the questions at the heart of the book. But beyond The Rabbit Hutch, beyond Vacavale, Indiana, beyond the United States even, The Rabbit Hutch is also a book about how our lives intersect, how our actions impact upon the lives of people we didn't even know existed, and how a little bit of human cruelty can go a long way, but how human tenderness can go even further. Rick Moody called Tess Gunty a writer of uncommon originality, both in terms of voice and vision. Well, Jonathan saffron Fur described The Rabbit Hutch as a profoundly wise, wildly inventive, deeply moving work of art. I'm delighted to say that Tess Gunty joins me in the writer's studio today. Tess, welcome to Shakespeare and Company.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to begin
0: with the, the context of the book, because obviously, as I said in the introduction, um, the, the building, the, the apartment block um, at the centre of The Rabbit Hutch, The Rabbit Hutch itself, is, is crucial to understanding how the various narratives of this of this book work um when I when I first read about the concept a few stories came to mind for me one a British novel and one a French novel so the British one is the J.G. Ballard book High Rise which sort of takes place as this kind of in a high-rise apartment block which slowly descends into anarchy and then the the other one was the the french book um life a user's manual by Georges Perec, which is sort of telling the stories of the different people in the apartment block and these are two very different books and indeed the rabbit hutch is very different again from from both of these but it seemed to me what all three of the books do is sort of by having a building at the center it in some way disrupts a traditional narrative in some way so would you be able to just reflect a little bit upon how this building came to form such a crucial part to your story and how it changed your writing as a result
1: well i think the the question at this at the beginning of the book when i first started writing it was How does structural violence generate interpersonal violence? Mm -hmm. It was something that I witnessed all the time in my town, which was an extremely neglected post-industrial town, and it was so similar to many others in that region. And I think that it's very difficult to trace the kind of chain collisions that happen all the time around the world. We know that they happen. We know that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is causing a global food crisis. We know that America's emissions are causing... Are, are damaging weather systems all over the mm. world, but especially in places with very low carbon footprints. And those systems are so vast, they are very difficult to trace. Mm-hmm. But it seemed possible to trace a series of collisions over the course of three days in a very contained setting. And so when I realized that I was interested in collision and I was interested in, in tracing... The macro to the micro. Mm-hmm. I knew I needed to give myself some kind of parameter, and giving myself at least a loose uh, rule that most of these characters had to live in the same building allowed me. It was sort of like working with a rhyme in a poem. Mm-hmm. It, it, it it gave you some some structure, some scaffolding. Yeah, and it allowed me to contain uh, what would have otherwise become a very chaotic and vast uh, project.
0: Mm-hmm. So did the the these various characters. Did they come to you sort of pre the concept of the rabbit hutch and then you were able to kind of put them all together in that way or was the building there first and you sort of populated it with the characters?
1: I think I knew that the majority of the characters lived in the same building immediately but the characters did appear to me with nothing but their most extreme quality Mm -hmm. and then the task was to figure out how they related to each other and also how that quality became inevitable. Yeah. Um, and hmm. I don't think that it was obvious right away when each character presented him or herself where exactly they lived or how exactly they fit in the narrative as a whole. But the building idea did come very, very early on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting as well, because you think of the, the sort of the, the effect that a, a building can have on on somebody's mentality and, and when we live in a building uh, you know alongside other people we're living in such close proximity to them and yet we don't really know them and in fact we only get to know their most extreme quality so I think of a neighbor of mine who enjoys putting techno music on at three o'clock in the morning and I loathe him for this <laughs> and yet you know I'm sure were I to get to know him were I to find out more about his life that would in some way at least hopefully make me more empathetic to this uh, this decision to disrupt my life in that way.
1: Right. I think that that's the case for so many people, no matter what kind of town you live in, you know, what urban fabric you inhabit. I I, I experienced that. I lived in South Bend, Indiana for most of my life, but I, be, I started writing this novel when I moved to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And in my, my neighborhood in Indiana, it was um, houses that were very close together. And this always struck me, even as a child, just... Living so close to people, and seeing them, mm. glimpsing them, but never knowing anything more about them. I mean, as a child, I had friends in the neighborhood, but as I got older, um, there was more and more alienation mm. from those around me. And so, in Brooklyn, that was dramatized because mm. we were in even closer proximity, and it was a very, um, it was a very old building with very thin walls, and so you could hear, you could hear little lives playing out, mm. kind of like radio plays, but you couldn't. You didn't, you know, you didn't know anything meaningful about these people, yeah. and so I wondered what would happen if all of these lives that are kind of jammed on top of one another, um, what if you could, what if you could peel back some of the anonymity?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just a quick aside, you said you you started working on the book when you moved to Brooklyn. Um, as we were talking about before, I've had, you know, James Joyce in my head for quite a few months now. And mm. um, one thing Joyce famously said. Was that he couldn't have written about Dublin from Dublin? he was only once he'd moved to Paris or Zurich or Trieste that he was able to to write a Dublin book. Did you feel something of that about about Indiana?
1: That was absolutely the case for mm. me. I had never set i mean I've been writing pretty obsessively since I was a child, and I'd never set anything I wrote in a place like my city right and I think that was partly because I had never seen it represented and so I didn't think that literature <laughs> was suitable for I didn't think that my <laughs> it city didn't was suitable. In places like exactly, that. <laughs> it just didn't happen in places like South Bend, Indiana. But I think it was also because when you're so close mm-hmm. to something you lose the force for the trees and I I couldn't have written this novel without the tenderness that arrived after I left mm-hmm, the city. Okay. I think I'd spent a lot of energy actually especially in my teenage and young adult years wanting to leave, mm-hmm. and so when I arrived in Brooklyn and that kind of, all the things I had feared could mm-hmm. no longer trap me inside them, yeah. I realized that there was, I, I just was newly sensitive to the beauty, the resilience, the kindness, the the kind of sublime and um, the sublime landscapes of factories and monocrops of corn yeah. and all of that, and i I could not have... I could not have written the novel mm. without that tenderness. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about South Bend, Indiana, because I confess, and maybe maybe our listeners will be more informed than me, but I'm, or, or rather, Vacavale, Indiana, which is where <laughs> where the book is set. Yes. Um, Indiana for me is sort of I had nothing to to map onto it. I didn't really have any sort of preconceptions about even where <laughs> it was in the states. I've come to know that it's in the Midwest, but like. Mm. Um, and sort of what kind of, what its history was, what its climate was like, what its uh, economic situation was. Mm. And I think probably, you know, to European readers, we tend to think, you know, maybe American literature happens on the coast in some way. It happens mm-hmm. in New York, it happens in California. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I have read a book set in Indiana before. Neither have I. Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I, there must be books that are set yeah. in Indiana. I know that there are, but I... um. I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to write about this place. Mm. It's home to millions of people, and yet it's vastly underrepresented in the American imagination and, and certainly in the global imagination mm-hmm. of America. And yet it is, I think, I think the problems that we consider to be quintessential American problems mm-hmm. are so visible there. Um, and, you know, whether it's uh, it, the plight of post-industrial economies that mm-hmm. have been essentially orphaned by the industries that once brought them prosperity— or all of the sort of um, the harmful belief systems that can flood a city when there's a power vacuum, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and f- to me, it was it was just um, it was kind of unbelievable that that this region of the world where you know so many people live and mm-hmm. it, and it's common these types of cities exist all over the globe. It's not just um, in America. And insofar as they ever are represented, I think that they are caricatured and um, it's assumed to be home to one kind of voter, mm-hmm. you know, usually like a white male Trump voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in my experience, the Midwest, the post-industrial Midwest was was vast and complex and various. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make room for a little bit of that, of that um, vivacity in the novel. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. There's one there's one moment which I think seems to kind of embody the kind of the the complexity of the of the area Um, where when 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 one of the characters says, oh, you live in this godforsaken town where your serial killers probably hold the door open for you. And this is this idea of both this sort of, you know, the town is in some way a blemish. It's abandoned. It's godforsaken. And yet there's this kind of underlying kind of historic courtesy or something which perhaps. one might not get with the serial killers of New York, for example.
1: Right. I I do think that there's, um, there's a knee jerk, if not kindness, then niceness there. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's important to stress that not everyone has extended that, Mm -hmm. that behavior. I think that, you know, as someone who's protected by whiteness and cisness and all sorts of things, I, I know that that is not extended Mm -hmm. to everyone, but, um, but I, I you know, coming from new York and and going back there now to Indiana when I visit my family, I am struck by this um, a sort of culture of, I guess interdependence of strangers, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that comes from being in a smaller place where yeah. or um, or something else, but mm-hmm. it is there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a line um, over the um, put into the mind of Moses, one of the characters who I'm sure we'll come on to talk about, where he thinks that he, he said he, Moses only understands contemporary politics when he's in the Midwest. Um, and that struck me as kind of, in a sense, crucial to the the context of this novel. And I guess particularly for maybe for non-American readers, more so than American readers, but perhaps, perhaps you know, readers in the States as well. This idea that um, one of the reasons we were also surprised in two thousand sixteen was not was not that it came out of the blue but that we hadn't been paying attention to mm-hmm. places like South Bend or vakervale
1: right and i think i i mean, I was living in New York when he was elected, and I was less surprised than I think a lot mm-hmm. of my friends who had only lived in coastal cities and again, before I said that you know there there are more kinds of voters there mm-hmm. than just the Trump voter, but it is definitely true that there there is I think a justified and unjustified anger Mm -hmm. that exists there powerfully and politicians are very good at capitalizing on Mm -hmm. that anger. And um, I see it on both sides of the aisle. It's not just Republicans, it's not just Trump. It's, um, I, the mayor of my hometown actually ran for president this past time around Pete Buttigieg, yeah. and
0: one of our Ulysses readers. Oh, really?
1: <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, his father was a Ulysses professor. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, he 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 also was appealing to, um, I think, a, a kind of at least acknowledging the very real ways in which people were failed mm-hmm. by government and people were neglected. And I, I think that that is essential for especially progressive politics to recognize. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit then about um, Blondine. So um, as I said, sort of the, one of the things we learn about Blondine very early in the novel is that she isn't like the other residents of her building. Um, and that's in so many different ways. Um, but I think one of the things that strikes us immediately is her being drawn to a certain mysticism or sort of mystical practice or something or something like that which I think it's sort of it 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 evolves and is quite fluid as the book as the book progresses um but it's also very strikingly a, a sort of i guess it feels kind of out of line in some way with the kind of let's say the religiosity that we associate again with a lot of a lot of small town America. So would you just be able to talk a little bit about the the roots of of Blondine's mysticism and how it manifests in her?
1: Well I think in some ways her attachment to the female Catholic mystics in particular was sort of an accident of her birth. She Mm -hmm. was exposed to those people probably through we learned that she went to a Catholic high school and um my town is very very catholic i i know that I, in fact i made vacaville pretty catholic as well and i i think that if she were raised in any other religious environment she would have latched onto a different kind of figure mm-hmm. for me what was important about her um her desire to leave her body was that it was essentially an animal instinct, an mm-hmm. animal instinct of, a, of, an, of someone trapped in a cage. Yeah. And I think for her, it wasn't actually, I mean, she is a fairly cerebral character, but she, it, this pursuit was not cerebral or mm-hmm. spiritual even. I think it was, um, it was a visceral panic reaction to mm-hmm. a, a sense of entrapment. And there are all sorts of explanations for why she feels this way in her body, in her town. But I think it was important to me to um, to give her some route of escape that didn't mm-hmm. rely on resources, money, mm-hmm. opportunity, because she knew she didn't have, I yeah. mean, she knows throughout the book she doesn't have access to those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, when we meet her, more or less, is the moment. Now, you, you talk about her desire to exit her body, and that is a sort of a, a spiritual desire. But also, when we when we meet her, she has just been attacked, and we don't, you know, the the details of this is something which becomes clear as the as the book goes on. Um, but it's it's a very it's very interesting because she's a you know she's she's described as kind of ethereally be- beautiful, and a sort of a uh, sort of a, the violent act of men against ethereally beautiful women is kind of in one sense uh, a trope in mm. in novels, and I was quite struck by. Your determination, which becomes clear quite quickly, I think, in the book to in some way undermine that that trope or to reconfigure it in some way. Was that kind of in your mind as you were writing that this was something which in a sense you wanted to to rewire?
1: Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you read it that way. This was very important to me. I think that it would have been dishonest for me to write this particular story about this particular person um, without violence Mm -hmm. I think that she she would experience violence and she would be targeted especially by men and the violence will take many different forms but um, I was interested in writing a character who was aware that this was a narrative that had been written for even the men before Mm -hmm. they enacted this violence against her and that and that there was a way to transcend the narrative that she was trapped inside Mm. and that was part of her attachment to this idea of leaving her body
0: yeah 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 and so we have this idea of sort of of mysticism and of violence and and one kind of interesting contrast in the book is between I guess how it manifests in Blondine a kind of a thoughtful intelligent but damaged woman and how it manifests in Blondine's flatmates um, which is sort of Almost kind of the, the flip side of the same coin in a way, because they, so one thing that should be said is Blondine and all of her flatmates uh, grew up in foster care and met at a sort of um, conversion um, uh, seminar, I guess, to allow, or adaptation maybe, to allow foster kids to kind of, who are no longer kids, to start making their own way in the adult world. And these three boys, or young men, are drawn sort of, they, they, there seems to be a kind of a similar urge, but the way it manifests itself is in kind of almost an interest in what might be called voodoo, essentially. Um, What do you think it is about the sort of the the structures that sort of allow, or the personalities perhaps, that allows kind of Blondine to be drawn to something which is in some way feels quite sort of purifying, and the the boys to be drawn more towards something which seems to be kind of a, a bit darker and potentially a bit more destructive?
1: Well, I think there are several differences um, in the ways that these characters have been raised to navigate the world, and of course, the gendered management of power is something that the book I think is interested in mm. in, in many different chapters. But I I was interested in the way that the socialization of gender sort of doesn't make room for um, for boys to express affection or mm. tenderness toward each other except through enacting violence on right. the world, like that is a, or, you know, th- through through sports and in yeah. a less violent context, or these are just, they're far from inevitabilities. There's nothing encoded in people that mm-hmm. makes them this way. But there is something encoded in our culture that mm-hmm. makes people this way. And I think that the boys, I originally I was interested in writing these boys who were obsessed with this girl, but essentially... At the end, I realized they really are obsessed with each other and they mm-hmm. want each other's affection they want each other's approval mm-hmm. so desperately that the the act of violence against Blondine, which you learn about as you go, is um, sort of the ultimate manifestation of their true loyalties mm-hmm. and for Blondine she was she was offered she was offered another another way of being in the world mm-hmm. she was offered a, a way of being gentle mm-hmm. and strong at the same time which I don't think that many boys especially in the Midwest are offered.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is there something I guess particular to the sort of the systemic effect of foster care? Like when you were when you were writing the novel was that something that you had to uh, research quite deeply to make sure you got right because it's it's such a sensitive area to, uh, to work with
1: absolutely i i did end up doing a lot of research um and i ended up writing pretty extensive backstories for mm. each character before the novel begins and i decided not to include them because i don't think that these characters are simply products of the foster system mm. i remember there was like an early copy of the back jacket where they called called these characters products of the foster system mm. And that to me was so vile. I don't mm. think anyone is a product of a system. I think that um, people are individuals and everyone has a very different experience mm. in the foster system. I know foster parents now um, in Indiana, and I know lots of different stories of different different children in this system. Um, and no story is the same, but I think things that do emerge is that when... There is there is not enough kind of structural supervision mm-hmm. to make sure that when these children are placed in the care of strangers, those strangers are, first of all, well-equipped, mm-hmm. really well-equipped to, um, to parent children who have most likely experienced trauma. Um, and also children who, or at least tra- training, essentially, and mm-hmm. vetting, obviously some families just are. Very loving and caring, and they're willing to do this um, well. But a lot of families kind of take advantage of the situation as well. Yeah. And so, for me, what was most important was to um, to show that these were people who had to struggle through their own formation mm-hmm. as adolescents. They were not protected by mm. by any kind of structure or individual. Yeah. And so they had to develop certain coping mechanisms mm. and forms of resilience that probably they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And then and there's something so specific about foster care isn't there because obviously adoption for example brings its own uh, its own stakes in a way I guess. But there's it does carry with it like a a commitment uh, of a couple to essentially make a child who is not genetically theirs part mm-hmm. of the family. Whereas foster kids don't get that while being fostered, it's a sort of, you know, as you say, there's nobody really, I, say, I guess, committed to them in that way. However committed to fostering foster parents are, there's not this kind of extra and what must be a sort of psychologically very important step to feel sort of legally attached to right. to their carers.
1: And some of that has to do with the fact that the the foster system is very interested in reuniting children with their birth parents if sure. it's possible. And mm-hmm. so unless, um, unless the birth parent is deemed, you know, permanently unfit, mm-hmm. which is really quite rare. Um, it's, it's hard for a family to adopt.
0: Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, so it's, it's sort of, um, there's this kind of this fluid situation, I guess, that mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, a lot of kids are left in. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked, um, you've talked several times about sort of systems. And I was interested to hear you say that sort of you objected to that idea of someone being the the product of a system because at the same time I think it's clear from the book that there's definitely this sense of systems having an effect on people and Mm -hmm. sort of and shaping people but is that sort of shaping for you more their sort of external conditions and opportunities than their sort of interiority?
1: Well I think it's sort of the way that siblings in a family can end up incredibly different from one another i think you are born with you know various abilities dispositions Mm -hmm. that are out of your control and then all of these kinds of micro interactions that you have with the world that are entirely your own depending on your birth order etc they determine so much Mm -hmm. um but you know you can still often see patterns of behavior or even just familial kind of ticks or Mm -hmm. a kind of microculture of a family um, expressed within Mm. a set of siblings. And so that's kind of how I think about systems and their effects on individuals. No two individuals will respond exactly the same way Mm -hmm. to conditioning, especially because there are so many other factors at play. But I do think that overall systems create um, various opportunities, spaces for freedom, or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And um, in this case uh the the economic the economic pain of this place has created extreme pressure on mm. communities which has created pressure on individuals yeah.
0: yeah yeah the the source of a lot of that um economic pain is as we talk we've described it as a sort of a post-industrial town and uh, you you give us quite a lot of the the story about the the company that sort of essentially I guess was part of the sort of the boom and the bust of of Vacavail, which is um, Zorn Automobile Company. So it yeah, started off back in the I think the late nineteenth century, producing horse you know horse drawn carriages and sort of and produced them so well that they became the sort of dominant uh, in the field. Why was it important for you as a writer to to sort of really flesh out the, the this sort of post industrial landscape with a very specific, very sort of identifiable? company and and system
1: well i've always found universality and specificity i think the more Mm. specific you you get um in your writing the more identifiable it is to others um or relatable i suppose i i modeled this particular company off of studebaker automobiles which was a car company that operated in south bend indiana my hometown and was once the largest car manufacturing facility in america i believe Mm -hmm. but it closed in the 60s and so i was born 30 years later and i felt haunted by this Mm -hmm. by this industry that i had no connection to i didn't Uh you know i didn't even have family members who worked in it i didn't but um but i think that the culture the presence of this industry with all of its cultural quirks and Mm -hmm. all of its specificity um determined so much about the structure of the city even just you know the urban design itself but also the culture of the city and the kinds of things that people were nostalgic about the Mm. kinds of things that people um that i i suppose guided a lot of their major decisions in life including their voting patterns and um and so this is a this is kind of another god Mm. of the city. And it was just as important to describe that god as it was to describe the religious culture of the city.
0: And you you end up with this kind of strange situation where the, the company has disappeared and the effects, the bad effects of the company are still sort of rippling out into the communities. And yet also you have some of the people, the descendants of the people who made money from the company A present too, and so occupying these kind of these mansions in the in the richer part of town, and so there's this strange kind of tension between uh, the damage the company has done to parts of the city and parts of the population, and the 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 way it has allowed other parts of the population to remain in place and to remain wealthy and to retain their status Mm -hmm. despite the effects of the destructive effects of the of the company.
1: Right, and I think we see this all the time in various um, manifestations, where the those who benefit the most from the prosperity and ultimate um, power abuses of of an industry or of a system or even of you know a form of a form of uh, energy. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically of you know America using so many. Fossil fuels, and then um, not really bearing the brunt of the consequences right right away. Um, Those who benefit are rarely the ones to suffer Mm -hmm. uh, when when the thing collapses, whatever it may be. And so, you know, there's at one point there's a flood in the town, and those historic houses are spared, Mm -hmm. whereas all of the low-income housing that's near the river and you know the more affordable um, housing and businesses. Mm are all ruined yeah and um i i was always struck by this this kind of uh these relics of the former opulence Mm. of of my city when i was moving around the city i mean there were these just enormous and imposing mansions that Mm. were built in the 1800s and and I see them, too, in, in other similar cities. And yet they often do now exist in um, fairly run-down areas of the town that yeah. were neglected and abandoned, too. And so they are these kinds of crumbling uh, sort of um, pieces of evidence that remain, um, s- they continue to be symbols of uh, of the power disparity mm. That existed before.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And living in one of these houses is James, who um, again occupies a slightly strange position in that he sort of he he's kind of I guess from a sort of a middle class family, and sort of married into into this wealth. And I mean, I was going to say James's story, but in fact, it's not really James's story. It's Tiffany's story. And so James is a teacher at high school, and Tiffany is one of his students.
1: Variables. In this equation, the variable of Y could be a producer, a gas station manager, the Sun King. On more than one occasion, he has been the President of the United States. X could be his employee, his stepdaughter, a wild plot of land, but he must believe that X is his. Most often, X is human. X is not always female. X always wants to be seen, and Y always wants to see her, or him, or them, or it. In the process, they often discover that Y wants to be seen, too. It has happened before, in rental video stores, churches, and meat lockers. It will happen again. This time, Y is a man named James Yeager, a music teacher at St. Philomena, the only private high school in Bacaville. Like many high school music teachers, James never wanted to be a high school music teacher. He accepted the job as a consolation lifestyle when both his band and the health of his mother failed at which point his future in Vacaville ossified. He regularly uploads home-recorded music under the name Vu. Cares for students, but not for pedagogy. Most call him by his first name. He's 42, handsome in a sleepy sort of way, sometimes brilliant and often depressed. The cool teacher. This time, X is a 17-year-old named Tiffany Watkins. Only a junior and she's already seen too much. Bleached hair, wraith-like complexion, Bad posture, wide-set eyes, panoramic vision suited for prey. Tiffany is insecure, cerebral, and enraged. Pretty in an extraterrestrial sort of way. Addicted to learning because it distracts her from the hostility of her consciousness. She has one of those brains that attacks itself unless it's completing a difficult task. Her fellow students live in the suburbs and spend their lunches complaining about the cruises that their mothers foist upon them. They exchange how my parents surprised me with my first brand-new car stories and wear coats from luxury outdoor brands as though driving to high school is an extreme sport. They are members of a decaying aristocracy, descendants of Zorn money, increasingly pointless but lousy with trust funds. They remind Tiffany of the royal family. The students smell like dryer sheets, every last one of them. Tiffany won a coveted scholarship to attend St. Philomena's and spends her lunches in the library— hunched over homework. The teachers like her because she is brainy and tragic. When discussing her amongst themselves, they call her less fortunate, at risk, atypical, and gifted. Her essays, although polluted with typos, frequently elicit suspicion of plagiarism. How could such a luckless, quiet girl produce such compelling, sophisticated arguments with all that going on at home? Reverently, the teachers cite her GPA and standardized test scores. She is special, they say. Still, they keep her at a distance, and she returns the courtesy. As a civilian, Tiffany buys her clothes at the thrift store, always a size too big. At Philomena's, she wears a uniform. The school had to pay for hers, and when she told the dean of student formation what size she wanted, he raised his eyebrows but did not object. The school, like its entire Catholic county, considers modesty a young woman's most admirable virtue. One winter morning, between passing periods, The English teacher delivers Tiffany to James's music room. She needs to act, announces the English teacher. You should have heard her reading Perdita just now. James looks up from his desk to see a scrawny girl in oversized clothes. Her pale skin reminds him of the -the glow-in-the-dark polymer clay that he buys for his children. You bake it, the clay. James coughs. As soon as he sees Tiffany, he wants to get away from her. Tiffany picks a cuticle. As soon as she sees James, she wants to touch the stubble on his chin, taste his coffee, try on his glasses. She blushes. Okay, says James impassively. Come to auditions on Thursday. He's directing The Spring Play, a dark, dystopian comedy about four teenagers who worship a mannequin. It was written by an obscure, multidisciplinary artist who drowned herself in 1923. Tiffany gets the lead. It's true that she is a volcanic actress— She has a gift for performance, reaction, and imitation, instincts cultivated by a childhood of unpredictable caregivers. But it's the inhuman quality of Tiffany that entrances James most. She is cold and far away, otherworldly, astral. It's true that James is a charismatic teacher, too big for his tank. But it's the extrahuman quality of James that entrances Tiffany most. He is burning and loud and there, right there. He is beloved he is sexy in his insomnia he looks famous if you squint she can see his pulse in his neck she can tell that his front incisor is fake she can reach out and touch him if she wants she wants she doesn't it goes like this a week into rehearsals tiffany starts smiling too long at james daring him to smile back because he is the only person alive that she wants to touch one evening she tells a joke that makes him laugh himself breathless and this is their first mutual shot of serotonin. It's clear to her that he would be happier in a coastal city. It's clear to him that she would be happier in a different species. By December, it is clear to both variables that each could capsize the other. For weeks, other students in the play covet the attention that James reserves for Tiffany, but they temper their suspicion. They know her story. Pity her. Assume that he does, too.
0: We were talking earlier about sort of, uh, cis, you know, sort of systems and I guess kind of hierarchies within those systems. And one thing that this particular part of the narrative shows us is, I guess, the the abuse of authority within certain systems.
1: Yes, to me, this was an opportunity to um, to do what I was describing earlier, which is I suppose to zoom in, because when you zoom out, these forces are almost too vast to describe. Mm. But when you zoom in on one relationship, it's much easier to track the escalation Mm. of these kinds of abuses. Um, And it was also another opportunity to write about a character who seems trapped in a narrative that they are aware has been written for them Mm. and has been played over and over and over again. And I think both characters, Tiffany and James, are aware of this as the relationship develops. and yet they seem unable to extricate themselves mm. from it or to really rewrite the script. And to me, that's a specific kind of hell yeah. <laughs> to be trapped in a trope that you mm. cannot exit. And yet it feels maddeningly singular mm. when something like this happens to you. So I wanted to also make room for um, the particular harm that these, that these very cliched mm. power abuses can still inflict mm-hmm. just because they've been done a thousand times doesn't make them less painful or you know catastrophic in the lives yeah. that they affect,
0: and they can also I guess affect it's the different types of harm as well and the different sort of gradations of harm which is very striking,
1: right? Exactly, and both you know still produced by systems as you said.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many of the sort of the tensions in the book seem in a way to be intergenerational. Um, I mean, I guess kind of. Um, perhaps it's a sort of a parent-child thing a lot of the time. So, you know, we had obviously these uh, four kids who came through the the foster care system. Um, and But then you also have, so Moses, who is uh, the son of Elsie, who was a famous kind of child actor in the in the 1950s or 60s. So you have a sort of almost a double level of sort of intergenerational um, tension there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, I mean, you said a moment ago that you were born in the, in the in the 1990s which just as an aside upset me enormously <laughs> to, hear, to hear such as such young successful writers but um uh I have a sense that there you know as we in the last few years there has been quite a sort of um I guess the rhetoric around sort of intergenerational uh tension has really really been hyped up mm. um so you know you get the sort of the reactions, you know the the criticisms thrown at the uh, baby boom generation mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. and one thing i think that's interesting that you do with the rabbit hutch is you sort of you lay these out but also you don't sort of you you in a sense f- present ways that these can be diffused in some way like you you don't sort of you don't dig the divide deeper but in fact are always looking for for connections for kind of overcoming these generational tensions
1: hmm I really like that reading of it, and I I haven't thought about it that way before. I think I was so preoccupied with um, the sort of parallel between an orphaned economy and sort of parentless characters mm-hmm. in this book, and whether they're actually parentless because their parents have died or because, or, you know, failed by their parents. Mm-hmm. I was interested in what, what happens to people when they they don't have any kind of powerful force protecting mm. them when they're most vulnerable. But I do think that I was extremely, it was very important to me to render the forces that were making everyone act the, the ways that they were, not to justify the behaviors of anyone, but to make their motives, if not explicit, then at least um, viscerally mm. palpable. Like mm. You can understand why Elsie, this child actress, is not great at being a mother. I think Mm -hmm. even though there's no, you know, there's no line that says why. I think I was interested in troubling the kind of predator-prey binary at Mm -hmm. any chance that I could. I think anyone who has enacted any kind of violence, psychological or physical, has usually received it first.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There's so much I'd like to talk to you about, but uh, we are coming (laughs) towards the end. But I'd just like to continue along this line of this sort of, I guess the... The interconnectedness, but um, I guess for sort of for good and bad, because in a way, I suppose a little bit in this conversation, we've concentrated on the kind sort of the knock on effect of bad actions or not mm. necessarily bad actions, but maybe slightly damaging actions, which we don't necessarily predict that a few a few years, a few generations down the line, they'll still be having these kind of destructive effects. Mm. But there also seems to be a focus on the kind of. The positive. A response that can be generated by acknowledging our human interconnectedness with each other, and mm. I'm trying to sort of talk around uh, what is the feeling at the end of the book because I don't really want to give too much away. But there really is this sense of sort of um, that these connections are are highlighted, but highlighted as a potential force for good. I guess
1: I think that's true, and I, I, a few people have been asking me if there's anything in the hope that in in the book that gives me hope and i always struggle with this question but ultimately the only thing i can ever highlight honestly is the potential for um for joining forces with those around you Mm -hmm. and whether that's to resist these colossal and inhuman powers that are Mm -hmm. operating um to benefit the few or or whether it's simply to seek Seek friendship, seek some sort of healing in your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that when I think about the systems and the crises that are especially uh, urgent right now, the climate crisis, racial injustice, all sorts of things, it feels um, th- these things feel so colossal mm-hmm. and so impossible to undermine as an individual. Mm-hmm especially an individual with very little power, but you can join forces with those mm. around you. And in um, in greater numbers, power can be generated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's sort of, there seems to be a certain sort of transcendence that lies in that too. I There was a line quite early on that made me laugh when Blondine is thinking about her sort of mysticism and uh, she sort of, she she thinks of it as a kind of uh, quote an elevated form of masturbation <laughs> and obviously that gives it the sense of being kind of very self-centered and very internal um and yet there's sort of something that comes from the the moment she sort of exits her body and this is no spoiler as i said because it's one of the first things we learn about her that this is coming is a sense of that actually this isn't this is about me but it isn't just about me i guess
1: Right. One thing that fascinates me about, um, you know, reported mystical experiences from all sorts of perspectives, religions, et cetera, um, is that most people report a sense of unity, Mm -hmm. extreme unity with not, not only other people, but other objects, other animals, Mm -hmm. trees, and in studies of, um, those meditating and there have been like some efforts to scan brains Mm -hmm. of people who are reaching some kind of mystical experience quote-unquote and what has been observed is that the part of the brain that processes the self sort of goes quiet Mm. during those experiences interesting and it also goes quiet during periods of extreme concentration when you're you know in a flow state when you're writing or or reading or anything and um that's fascinating to me. Mm.
0: That seems to me like a perfect thought on which to, to finish. Um, the Rabbit Hutch is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online store, uh, and also from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever you may live, whether that's in London, Brooklyn, or in South Bend, Indiana, uh, do uh, do seek it out. Um, Tess Gunty, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just €3 a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare & Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo Alex Freiman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.